psalm stands out to me because I remember um, prepping for this sermon. It was the first time I'd ever preached in, uh, in big church, as, uh, as we sometimes say. And uh, there was a, a, an incredible gentleman, Dr. Henry Blunt, who was associate pastor at that time. And um, super, like the nicest, sweetest old man you'd ever met in your life. Um, and I remember talking with him about sermon preparation and all that. And so I went through all the process, everything I knew as a, as a bristling 19-year-old who thought he had the world by the seat of the pants. And I remember um, right before service started, my parents came to the back uh, where I was and, and prayed over me. Um, and I remember being so nervous and feeling so unsure about what I was about to preach. And then I opened up my text and said, so I'll lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where will my help come from? And I realized I'm so nervous and I'm preaching about where our help comes from, but I had not asked God for his help. And so I, 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 prayed and said, God, this is the thing that I'm about to preach on is what I need in my life. And, and I don't remember how it went. I don't want to remember how it went most likely. Um, but I want to read this psalm to us this morning because I think it's, man, I love how the Holy Spirit just does these segues sometimes. Um, it says, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is your shelter by your right side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and your going, both now and forever. I think that, ha- that psalm holds particular significance for a couple of things. One, for some of the things that our congregation has been going through recently. Um, but also in terms of our text for today and the things that the Lord has for us. Last week we covered um, Luke chapter 8 verses 6 through 18 where Jesus is telling us you don't light a candle and then hide it under a, a bushel or under a basket or under a bed as it says in the scripture. This light, when you, when you light something, the intention is so that everyone can see, right? And that's what we're called to be. And this, this message is on the heels of the parable of the sower. If you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, that's what Lizzie was referring to when she was talking about manure, um, that God uses all of those things in our life, those struggles to create this fertile soil in our hearts so that the the seed, which is the Word of God, can grow. And that growth only happens and produces fruit when our soil is tended. And so what we've talked about over the last several weeks is allowing God, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts in such a way that our hearts are moved from sandy or rocky or barren soil to a, a, a soil that is fertile and that is ready to produce that fruit. And these challenges that we go through in life, the things that the psalmist is addressing in Psalm 121, is such a good reminder for us this morning that as we are going through the difficulties of life, whether that's something that's happening in the moment or something that's been in process in us for years, God is using all of that for our good. The challenge that we've all been left with the last couple of weeks is to consider the condition of our hearts and whether we're allowing God to produce fruit through us. Sunday night, um, David Hill came over to the house and and Bethy and I uh, got to hang out with him and we had some really excellent and and, and enlightening conversations for me. I had two two people who grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, which I did not, kind of sharing some of the the church trauma that they went through and we'll address a little bit of that. But but David said something that I think was very intuitive and it was helpful for me and I think it'll be helpful for all of us in our understanding of today's passage. David said, 
Will, you talk about obedience. And, and like we can all agree, I talk about obedience a lot, right? You get an amen on that? Anybody? Okay. He said, you talk about obedience, but it's really surrender. I'd never thought about it in those terms before. And so this idea has been rolling in my head all week. As I've thought about it, I've come to the conclusion that I think for myself, for a long way, I felt, for a long time, I felt that way as well. And I think that most of you would agree as you think about that, that when we think about obedience, we think of it in terms of surrender. I think it'd be wise for us to also consider that there's a potential for many in our society, people who may visit our church, to hear us talking about walking in obedience, about abiding in God, and they, they filter that through an understanding of, I have to give something up in order to be what God wants me to be. They think about that in terms of surrender or sacrificing things in their life. But this also made me think about what this means in the larger context of the life of a believer, like over the millennia. Like since Jesus died and rose from the grave, how has this affected the church in the way people approach their spiritual lives? Is it unique to, to something in our age, in our society today? And I'll be honest, I haven't had the time to research that all the way out, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts on what you think. I think that's something we can talk about in a life group. But today I, I titled our sermon, and this is, it's a long one, Annie, you can pull the slide up there, it's kind of wordy, Reframing Obedience, the Nature of Surrender in the Age of Indulgence. And I called it the Age of Indulgence. I'm talking about this notion that there are things in this world that while not necessary for life, we feel are a right, something that we are supposed to have. And those rights can span the gamut from um, owning a smartphone all the way to having running water in your house, right? Both of those things are great, we can all agree, but are they necessary for life? I think we consider these things that are not necessary for life as being something that we are automatically owed or given, and therefore having to give those things up constitutes a surrender in our life. And I think the Lord wants to challenge today our thinking about what our rights are. Not as Americans, right? I'm not trying to be political or, or trendy or anything like that. But our rights as human beings. We believe many things are owed and therefore not to have those things, we consider that something that we must surrender. But surrender by definition is giving up a right or a possession by compulsion or demand. And I hope you guys fully understand that God's desire for surrender, it, he doesn't want us to do something out of compulsion or by demand. That's not what we see in Scripture. Anything that we surrender is in response to his love and surrendered for us, not by demand. We need to let God reframe in our minds what we consider rights and blessings. Look at, with me at, uh, this is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's about self-denial, and, and it, it ties into not just this passage, but one coming a little later that we'll address in a couple of weeks. It says, Jesus' radical message about discipleship comes through clearly in his powerful saying, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And Luke 9.23 adds daily, and follow me. Thus, Jesus calls those who wish to be his followers, to reject the natural human inclination toward the self. 
He also calls them to take up their cross, the instrument of death by crucifixion, and in this way to follow him. This call is not so much a call to martyrdom as a command to deny self, even to the point of death. In Bonhoeffer's now famous words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. A disciple must be prepared to die if it is where the road of discipleship leads. But the saying refers not so much to a literal martyrdom as to an attitude of self-denial which regards its life in this world as already finished. The disciple now lives for Christ, not for self. Giving up your life is the point of surrender. That's where it happens. However, giving up a perk of living in the United States, I don't think that qualifies as surrender. I think we fundamentally misunderstand why we think about the things in life the way that we do. In order for us to understand that, we've got to go back to the roots of our need for surrender. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So the world that God created for us is vastly different than the one that we live in today. God created Adam to live in a world that provided all that he needed both for life and for freedom. And he gave him the freedom to enjoy the world that he created. But there's no real freedom if there's no choice, right? By giving Adam free will, God was creating true freedom. He gave Adam the choice to choose to live in the abundance that God created. So God gives Adam the choice to eat from the forbidden tree and to gain knowledge of good and evil or to live in the abundance that God created him to have. Adam shares this information with Eve and they made a choice. They, choose to give up, they chose to give up their freedom and to become slaves to sin. This morning in, in one of my um, devotionals by A.W. Tozer, it said, God wills that men should be free, but not that they be free to commit sin. If Adam and Eve had not disobeyed God, there would be no need for surrender. Our fundamental misunderstanding is what we are actually surrendering. Our surrender is not to give up our freedom, but to gain our freedom back. We surrender by giving up the sin of making an idol of ourselves. You see, when Adam and Eve chose to sin... They chose to disobey, and we talk about that all the time. But what was their disobedience about? Is they wanted to be like God. They wanted to have the knowledge that God had. They made themselves as important as God. Adam and Eve chose their desire to enlighten themselves over the freedom that God had given them. And their decision resulted in being born and us being born with an innate desire to care for ourselves. The surrender that Jesus calls for is a surrender 
to that desire to trust God to care for us as he originally intended. And only by giving up ourselves can we experience the freedom that God wants for us. I know that's a long introduction to today's message. But I wanted to walk through that because I want us to understand that when we think about surrender, and this is new information for me. It's not like I've been walking around with this knowledge in my head my whole life. This is a result of a conversation with another believer where God made me consider what I think. But I think all of our lives, when we think about our relationship with God, when we think about what God is calling us to do, we think about the things that we have to give up, the things that we must surrender in order to be obedient to God. But I think what God wants us to understand this morning is that when we surrender to those selfish indulgences, that what we are surrendering is not sin. We're surrendering to become free. You see, the world tells us that the sin that we want to do is where freedom lies because I can do what I want. But if we look at Scripture, what we're going to realize is that when we surrender to ourselves, we gain our freedom back to live as God created us originally. This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. And I wanted us to look at all this because Jesus is about to challenge us once again. Strong word from him. Look at this short passage. We're just going to read a couple of verses, verses 19 through 21. So Jesus on the heels of this, to put this back in context, where we are in the book of Luke, Luke is, er, John, uh, Jesus excuse me, has just taught the parable of the sower. He's explained it to the disciples, and then he's given this little short section on being light in the world. And then he follows it up with this. It says, then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. I don't think it's any accident that Luke places this story here. In other gospels, this phrasing from Jesus happens in other places. But remember, Luke didn't do this in a chronological order. Remember, he's telling Theopolis, I've put this in an orderly fashion so that you may understand the person of Jesus. So Luke puts it here at the climax of Jesus' teaching on hearing the word of God, enduring it, and producing fruit. I love how the Holman New Testament commentary describes Jesus' desire here. It says, and I put Jesus in parentheses so that you would know who my is, but it says, my sole task is to make people listen to the word of God and live it out. That's what Jesus came to do. I cannot stress enough how important it is to, for us to remember that Jesus was not trying to make us better people. I think often when we examine our own lives, when we hear messages, when we listen to podcasts, when we spend time in Scripture, I think we think the goal is to make me a better version of me. But that's not what God came to do. Jesus is on a mission to redeem us and make us something completely new, something better than we've ever been. The point of the parable of the soul was for people to begin to understand the expected outcome of hearing the good news and what it was going to take for us to have that outcome. And when we hear the gospel and respond to it as described in Luke 8, 15, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it by enduring and producing fruit. When we do that, a supernatural process happens in our lives. And point number one for today is that the kingdom life is the new nature of a follower of Jesus. We become a new creation. We're something completely different than we were before. 
God does something in us that we cannot do in our own power. Look at Paul's teaching in the second letter of the church in Corinth. He addresses this idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. I, I got it in the NLT version up there because I like the wording a little bit better. Paul says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift of God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Church, we become a new creation and we receive a new life. I don't know if you've ever looked at this section before that. I've never noticed this before, but I want us to flip back to verses 13 through 15. I find it funny that if you go back and look at that, Paul's words for this passage, he talks about how people may think they're crazy because of how they're now living. Look at this with me, verse 13 through 15. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way. Christ's love controls us. Isn't that funny? Either way, Christ's love controls us since we believe that Christ died for all. And we also believe that we have all died of our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and raised them for the dead. When we become a new creation, our priorities change. And we live different because of what we discover about Jesus. We become different from the rest of society. And their perception is that we must have lost our minds. I don't know if y'all have ever experienced that before, but I certainly have. I want us to point out that Paul describes two deaths in the process of us becoming new creations. First, there's Christ's death on the cross for all of us. And then second is our death to our old lives. Upon hearing the good news of what Jesus did for us, millions of people have freely given up their old lives for the sake of a new one. And because we die to our old lives, Jesus lives through us and we respond. That's why he says in verse 19, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us a wonderful message of reconciliation. We've, we've talked about this a hundred times. When you experience such good news, you cannot help but tell other people about it. This is the natural response to goodness. We want to share it with others. I've, I've used the example of grandparents telling you about their grandkids, right? They never run out of great things to say about their grandkids. They want to tell you all about their grandkids because their grandkids are awesome. That's the same for us. When we hear this excellent good news, we, we got to tell it to people. And then we are elevated to a new position in the kingdom that we share. Look at what he says in verse 20. It says, so we are Christ's ambassadors and God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Interestingly, this is one of the things that came up in the conversation with David 
he and Bethany both talked about the church trauma that they experienced with this phrase. Because it was taught in such a way that because we are Christ's ambassadors, we must present ourselves as perfect as he is perfect. And I understand the logic behind that idea, but that's not the gospel. That's not what we learn. Being Christ's ambassadors has been corrupted in people's minds because they were taught that their actions is what made them Christ's ambassadors or made them good ambassadors for Christ. But that's not what Paul is saying. We are Christ's ambassadors not through our perfection, but through our redemption. The fact that we're not perfect. And God still looks at us and says, I love you. You are mine. That's what makes us the ambassador, is that we get to stand out and say, come back to God because I was so far from him, I was messed up. Look, I'm still messed up. And Jesus loves me. That's the ambassador that Christ wants. Not, not us pretending to be something that we're not, but fully owning who we are and knowing we're not good enough, but Jesus loves us anyway. That's what it means to be an ambassador. Our weakness and inability to be like Jesus is what shouts God's goodness. We are walking and talking case study for the immense love of Christ. We're not perfect or even close, yet God still loves us and chooses us as his own. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is that right where we are, Christ said, I love you. I love you to death, literally. And this brings us to our second point to the day, for today. Nothing about our physical birth or environment determines our relationship with God. In Luke 8, 19 through 20 that we read a while ago, both person, the one who brings the word to Jesus and his family that's there, assumed that they were more important than the crowds between them. So Jesus is in the middle of the crowd all around him. Mom and his brothers are over here. And mom and brothers assume that they are more important than the crowd. And whomever they got word to also assumed that they were more important than the crowd. But Jesus quickly squashes that assumption, doesn't he? However, this same idea is still prevalent in the church today. Like Jesus' family, we assume that because we have a history with the church, that we are closer to Jesus than we actually are. Jesus makes it clear that there is only one thing that brings us into his, quote, family. And it's not proximity, and it's not history that does that. Redemption is the only thing that can make us a new creation and graft us into Jesus' family. You may think, Jesus' words in verse 21 don't say anything about redemption. Let's look at them again. It says, but he replied to them, my mother and my brother are those who hear and do the word of God. Church, we receive redemption after hearing the good news and responding to it. Redemption is for all people, but not everybody chooses to respond by trusting their lives to Jesus' work on the cross. Paul refers to this when he says, once we, we only saw Jesus from a human perspective but now we see him differently. Paul was the same way. He knew of Jesus. He knew because he was a religious zealot. And he persecuted the church. He saw him from a human perspective. But God on the road to Damascus opened his eyes and now he saw him very differently. He saw him in truth. And our eyes as followers of Jesus have been opened to the truth of who Jesus is. And now knowing Christ differently We hear his words and respond by holding on to them and enduring like Luke talks about in verse 
15. Point number three for the day is that with freedom and recreation comes a new set of priorities. We become a new creation and our lives become completely different. I liken this to when you become a parent. If you're a parent in the room, you probably had a very similar experience to me. Typically, before you have kids, you have one set of priorities. And then, I can tell you as a father, those priorities changed completely when I met my children. It happened with all five of them, five different experiences, where I had a set of priorities, I met a new child, those priorities are not important anymore. I got a new set right here, right? The same thing happens when we become a new creation. Prior to knowing Jesus, when we're still looking at him from a human perspective, we have one set of priorities. Paul had a different set of priorities. Until he saw Jesus for who he was, God did a supernatural work in him and his priorities changed. This new love changed the way I saw the world when my children were born. And it changed how I saw myself. I didn't change those priorities out of duty, right? When Sally, my firstborn, was born, I didn't go, oh, snap, now I got a kid. How'd that happen? I guess I got to change my life. It didn't work. Like, maybe for some people it does. But I saw this beautiful, screaming little redhead, and I thought, I didn't know what love was. I thought I did. But now something new has happened. And for the rest of you kids, the same thing happened when I met you for the first time too. Sally's not special. Well, I mean, she is, but not like that. You're welcome. You tried to die on us, man. That's another story for another day. You're like your mama. Yeah, y'all are catching up. Good job. A powerful, internal, supernatural shift in the depths of my being changed my priorities. A similar thing happens when we discover the truth of Jesus' love for us. There is a change on the inside that the Holy Spirit does. Another one of my commentary said this, faith is accomplished by action, referencing James 2.17, expressed itself through love, Galatians 5.6, and puts God's word into practice, Luke 8.21. Faith in action is the result of that internal change, that supernatural recreation that Jesus does in our innermost being is a result of our saving faith. We aren't putting these changes on from the outside and then hoping that it will change us on the inside. That's how a lot of people do church. They try to correct behavior. They try to be a Christ ambassador that looks the right way, does the right things, says the right things like, bless your heart, right? But that doesn't change us on the inside. But when we let Jesus change us on the inside, the outside follows suit. And not only did God change my priorities instantly when I met my children, but church, he continues to change my priorities as my children grow. If you've got kids that are getting older, you understand that. The same is true regarding our relationship with God. It changes as we grow. Our recreation is a gradual change that happens over the course of our lives. One of our distinctives covers this 
change in our hearts. It, and we pull from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And I love the Amplified. We always use it, the Amplified version. It says, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which exerts itself over believers, and that I may so share his sufferings as to become, as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death in the hope. The Holy Spirit works in us from our salvation all the way to our death to make us more like Jesus. This process that we're all on, and by the way, we're all in different places in that process, and that's okay. But all of us are in process. All of our processes are going to look both different and similar. And the one constant that we will experience in all of our process of becoming more like Jesus is that there, we will be progressively more like Him. Which, by the way, is a pattern of obedience. That as the Holy Spirit works in us, as we grow in our understanding of our knowledge of who Jesus is, we are going to progressively mature in our faith just like a child cannot care for themselves when they're born. And by the time they're 18, they mostly can. Right? Sally thought that was funny. We grow. God intended for it to be that way. I think we often look at that moment of salvation when Scripture says we become a new creation and we think, I was real bad, then instantly I was real good and the rest of my life is going to be a cakewalk. Has anybody experienced that? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't. It was a progression. I'm still progressing. We're all still progressing. The choice to do what Jesus directs us is going to make us noticeably different from the people that we're doing life with. There's going to be a pattern of surrender that will mark our lives. But what we'll come to understand is that our surrender isn't to the things of this world. Our surrender is to ourselves so that Christ may increase as we decrease. So to redefine or reframe obedience, it is surrender. But it's not giving up the things that the world has to offer. It's giving up the selfishness in us so that we can experience more of who Jesus is. It's about looking at the things in my life and the things that I think are important and saying, Jesus, is this as important as I think it is? If he says no, forget it. And what we get out of that is not just less opportunities to do fun stuff. What we gain out of that, our, our surrender brings us back to the freedom that God created us to live in. He, thank you, Anna. God created a perfect garden, beautiful, with everything that we needed to live and survive. And that's where he wants to bring us back to. That's the point of our redemption. It's not so that we have to have all these rules in our lives that make life no fun, right? We all know that. We understand that. We get that here. But what we don't think about is that when we are called to obedience, when we're called to give up something, it's not the stuff of the world. It's to give up something in us so that we can become more like Jesus. Our obedience to God and surrendering to ourselves are acts of absolute love for the God who gave up everything to bring us back to himself. The world tells us 
that surrender is giving up what the world offers. The Word of God tells us a very different story. The Word of God tells us that surrendering our sinful desire for our way will bring us back to freedom that we were created to have. Surrender brings us to the blissful days when God provided all that we need. I want you to think about your own history, and I'm going to close out with a quote. That as you have walked in obedience to God, you have experienced the blessings of God. We're not doing this. It's not, it's not an equation where A plus B equals C. But as we walk in obedience, even when life is hard, God works in the hardness to make us more like himself. He is working the soil in our hearts to bring that portion of our heart from where it is to where it needs to be. And as Debbie said, sometimes we've got to go through the poop to get there, right? I want to close this out with this quote. To have heard God's word is of no value unless accompanied by faith. Yet that faith is of no value, as chapter 8, verse 13 reveals, unless it is a faith that puts God's words into practice, from verse 21. Earlier, Luke described this kind of faith as a faith with a noble and good heart, which preserves. The gospel must be responded to in faith, but saving faith is more than mere intellectual assent. True faith endures it preserves, it puts into practice the teachings of that faith. Luke believed that we are indeed saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that every time we dig into your word, we learn something new, not only about you, but about ourselves. Father, I ask that this week that as we're thinking about the things that you're calling us to do, the, the people that you're calling us to be, that you'll help us to see that the surrender is not giving up the, the good things of the world, but it's giving up the selfishness in us so that we can become more like you. Father, I ask that as we, as we process this, that you would reframe our understanding of what it means to walk with you, that you would continue to detox us from the world's view of what it means to be free. Father, you'd help us to see the freedom that you created us to live in. And Father, that when we do surrender, we're surrendering for more freedom. Jesus, I ask as we close this morning, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts. This week, as we process your word, as we spend time with you, that you would do a work in our hearts. Father, show us the freedom that you have already provided. Help us to enjoy the goodness that you've already placed in our lives. Jesus, help us to see ourselves and the world around us the way that you see it. I ask these things in your name. Amen.